Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll get into the content here. God, that, thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to be together with this crew. I thank you for the work that you've been doing as your word has been explained and exposed uh, throughout the course of this weekend. And I pray that even as we look at this topic and consider this, this, um, this concept of self-care and how you want us to think about it, that you give us wisdom in it. I pray, God, as your word does, would you comfort us if we need comforting in it? And would you afflict us if we need to be disturbed by it and move to action? So help us, God, this morning to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, the concept of self-care, like obviously you guys are all in this room because you're interested in it, it's gotten a lot more attention in the last number of years. That wasn't really a term that was used when I was in college. Uh, you know, at Kutztown, I was a Kutztown student. Uh, we had me day, so certainly they were doing this sort of stuff. But uh, that term is a more recent term. According to Google Analytics, the number of searches for self-care uh, doubled since about 2016, so it shot up right around then. Terms started getting popularized, and it quadrupled in one particular month around that time. That would be April 2020, right after the lockdowns started. There was obviously a lot of interest in this. So the chatter about self-care has only increased you know, with the pandemic, all those stressors that came with it, trying to figure out what life is like on the other side of that, even now. Um, I think certainly the rise of mental health issues and sort of our awareness of those things has all contributed to that. With somewhere between 30 and 40% of college-age adults reporting experienced disruptive levels of anxiety or depression this year, it makes sense that this topic would get a lot of attention. The World Health Organization defines, because we need their definition, I guess, the World Health Organization defines it as the ability of individuals, families, and communities to promote health, prevent disease, maintain health, and to cope with illness and disability with or without the support of a healthcare provider. So the concept's clearly popularized. It's around, uh, we're swimming in that water. So here, here's the question that I, I ultimately want to ask and answer with this session is, what do we do with that when the culture is telling us this is, this is to be expected, this is to be practiced, it's normative, and all of that stuff, and yet we have Jesus Christ coming along and saying things like, and this is in your outline there, in Mark 8, 34 to 36, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or look at the other one there, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is, which is your spiritual worship. See, doesn't that sound like the exact opposite of self-care or self-preservation? It is actually self-sacrifice that he's talking about there. So how do we understand as Christians maybe the real limitations that we face while understanding that our calling is to be a living sacrifice? That's the question I want to explore and answer with you guys here this morning. So we're going to work through this in a couple chunks just to, to consider this topic. So I want to talk about God's plan in self-care, and then we'll, we'll talk about God's purpose for our lives. So let's talk about God's plan in self-care. And I'm going to move us through a bunch of different scriptures as we go through this, and then we'll camp out in the next section on one particular scripture to get some more. So let's talk about God's plan. Well, let's talk first about his provision. What is self-care? Let's continue to think about this and really ask the question, is it even a biblical concept? 
Because um, the world might say, hey, this is good, this is right, you should do this. But just because the world says it doesn't mean that we just ingest that. We have to discern these things. Is it what God has said and is it good? So let's understand what is it. You know, sort of the modern understanding of self-care is summarized by like that popular metaphor of the oxygen mask. You guys ever hear this? It's the idea that, you know, if a plane is hitting turbulence, you're starting to go down, you know, the little oxygen mask falls down. And self-care is like this idea that you got to put your own mask on first before you try to help, help say, your child with you. Because you're not going to be able to help them unless you are, you know, conscious. So get the oxygen mask on your face first, then help somebody. So the idea is, hey, you got to take care of your own needs first, and then, and then you take care of somebody else's. An article on the website Everyday Health clarifies it. It says this, self-care is not synonymous with self-indulgence or being selfish. That's helpful. Self-care means taking care of yourself so that you can be healthy, you can be well, you can do your job, you can help and care for others, and you do all the things you need to and want to accomplish in a day. This is not just self-indulgence, treating yourself constantly. It's doing what you need to do to meet your needs to facilitate endurance. That's what they're suggesting. So again, let's ask the question, is it biblical? Well, let me just look at a couple of examples from the scripture here where maybe we see some hints that this is a, a good concept. Think about Mark 6, 30 to 32. Uh, and that's on your outline there. Mark 6, 30 to 32. Here's an example. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. We see the Lord Jesus ministering to his men, the, the disciples, uh, and, and he understands with all the busyness going on that they needed rest. They were limited and they needed the, this attention. It, it says in the scripture there that they had no leisure even to eat. So you imagine the disciples are tired and hungry and the Lord Jesus himself understands that and brings them away for the purpose of rejuvenation. So God knows our limitations. Here's another example from 1 Kings 19, verse 4 to 8. This is a story about Elijah the prophet after he had a big success. Uh, the, uh, you know, well, I won't go through all the details of it. Big, big success followed by a big threat. So the, kings were, or the queen was trying to kill him. So he's on the run. Uh, big success. And then followed by a big scare. So he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Okay, a little picture into how he's feeling at this moment, right? Not good. So he asked that he might die, and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose, and he ate, and drank, and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. See, even just in this little vignette, you see the story of God meeting physical needs of a prophet in order to launch him into the mission that he had. That as he is discouraged from uh, these threats that he was experiencing and everything, God even steps in to meet these very physical, very human needs of his prophet. So God knows. God knows that we are limited. He knows that we have very physical needs and all of these things. So how do we think about this? 
that God provides for us, but what is his design in these things? Or maybe another word, uh, another way to think about it is what is different about the biblical approach to say the concept of endurance, right? If that's what self-care is trying to fuel, what's different about the biblical approach of it? Let me highlight at least three things that are different about the biblical approach. The first is this, that it's primarily God care, not self-care. If you're doing fill-ins on the outline there, that's your fill-in. It's primarily God care, not self-care. So what's different about the biblical approach is we understand that we have a God who cares for us. See, it's God and the God-given means of rejuvenation that fuel endurance. It's not us trying to preserve us, but us throwing ourselves on God who will preserve us even as we are being poured out. Did you notice that in both the Matthew passage and the First Kings passage, that it's God who draws the people away to be refreshed? that he is the one who provides it. Or, or listen to a, a, a similar mindset from 2 Corinthians 1.9. This is not on your outline, but you can just listen. As the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, God may even put us in positions of suffering or even just experiencing our limitations so that we rely on him and not on ourselves. This part of endurance is learning to live with the limitations that, that you really have and developing healthy patterns in order to endure. But at the end of the day, this isn't you in your quest to preserve, preserve your life. It's you resting in God who will enable you to, be, to spend and be spent with, quote, all his energy, as Paul says in Colossians 1.29. Listen, friends, we have something far more robust than self-care. We have the God who cares, the God who cares for us. And so fundamentally, we need to shift that is not primarily about us caring for ourselves. It's actually leaning on the God who cares for us. We have something far greater than goat yoga. So a second thing that that is different about this is that true self-care is humbly submitting to the real limitations that God has placed on us. True, quote-unquote, self-care is humbly submitting to the real limitations that God has placed on us. That this is a fundamental shift in the way that we can think about it that is different than what the world offers. Let me explain. Many of the things that self-care practitioners suggest can be biblically understood as submission to God. They can be understood as actually uh, understanding that God has built us with real limitations And so we live within those boundaries that God himself has ordained for us. Let me give you a couple of examples. Consider the encouragement to get proper sleep. This is one I often have to think about. I don't sleep super good. Uh, And so I've had to do some research on this, a lot of thinking on this. Um, You know, self-care practice, they talk a lot about this stuff. And you are designed to need, you know, optimally eight hours of sleep a night. Which is just bonkers, right? Because God, who created us, is content that, if you do the math, one-third of your life is spent unconscious. Cool. Okay, so he has limited us. He has designed us to function that way. Consider, look at this psalm, Psalm 127, verse 2. It makes this point. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. 
for he gives to his beloved sleep. Do you hear what he's saying? It is vanity. It is pointless to wake up early and go to bed late just so you can work harder, do more, fill your day, all of that stuff. Listen, he gives to his beloved sleep. It is a good gift to limit your day. And it is actually foolishness. It's vanity to, as the other colloquialism, you know, burn the candle at both ends. But do you hear how this is actually a call to a disciplined humility? That he exposes the pride behind anxious toil. Maybe you guys, some of you guys can relate with that. If you're pulling constant all-nighters, do you understand that there's actually a pride behind that? Or, or even if you think about maybe, maybe your particular disposition is you don't struggle with overstudying. Maybe your particular dip, disposition is you, you know, struggle with over-procrastinating or over-entertaining. If you are staying up all hours of the night to play video games or watch TV or scroll through YouTube, whatever it is, listen, there's actually a pride behind that because you are not humbly submitting to a limitation, a real limitation that the God who loves you, that says he gives to his beloved, that the God who loves you has given to you. So you understand, true self-care is humbly submitting to these real limitations that God has placed on us because he loves us and he's designed us to be limited. Consider another example. What about the, the work-rest pattern that God has set for us? He baked it into creation that he created the world in six days and rested on one. God did not need to rest. But as a demonstration to us, and he actually like installed it into the fabric of creation, that you work six, rest one, God did this himself, and he's given that to us. And that we are actually called to submit to that limitation. It is not good to work seven days of the week. And so you should actually limit yourself, submit yourself, and take at least one day off. Uh, Think about another example from Matthew 6. There is a call in Matthew 6. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with that. Jesus is very clear. He says, do not be anxious. Uh, You can hear it repeated in Philippians chapter 4. It's actually a command. Do not be anxious about anything. But in prayer petition, submit your request to God. We are actually called to submit to a limitation that God has placed on us. We are not free to be anxious about things. And... God has created us. We cannot do everything. God made us that way. And so in humility, we we need to admit our limitations and discipline ourselves to live in the means that God has provided and submit to a God who is going to care for us and is going to meet our needs. You can't just keep studying and studying and studying or working and working and working to try to provide for yourself. You have a God who cares for you. And so self-care, this idea, a better way of understanding is saying, God put a limitation on me, and I'm going to, in humility, submit to that. Let me give you one other example, maybe a different different way of thinking about this. Consider the call from Hebrews 4 that says, strive to enter the rest that Christ gives us. Paraphrasing a little bit there. But he says, strive to enter the rest. In other words, submit to a God who has finished the work of securing your salvation. You do not need to work to earn your salvation with God. God has died for me, that God has died for me means that God will also care for me, and I don't need to do this on my own. So the implications of all of this is it means, yes, set up good, humble, disciplined habits in your life. We need to get good sleep because that's the way God designed us. 
Trust me, I went through about a year and a half of getting about three hours of sleep a night. I was not functioning well. You're designed to sleep. So get good sleep, set up patterns. We ensure uh, that we work six, take a day off, and we limit the work that we do so that we can get to church. This God-ordained means of finding rest and recuperation, recuperation with the people of God. You take time off. You maintain a schedule so that you can keep priorities in the right spots. We spend time in community with other believers. And yes, we eat vegetables because that's the way God has designed your body. All of these are ways that we can worshipfully submit to a God who has built us uh, to operate within limitations he's set. Listen, you will get a reward in heaven for laying down your life. You will not get one for dying because you poorly managed your life. I'll say this too. Some of you guys in this room, you know, your college students, you guys are driven. Uh, you're, you're hard workers in all of this. You know, Jesus tells us, that we are to abide in him. You guys heard that before? It's John 15, 5, that I am the vine, you are the branch of a man. A man abides in me and I in him. He will bear much fruit. Listen, um, in The Fuel and the Flame by Steve Shadrach and Paul Worcester, uh, they say if you are too busy to spend time with God, then you are busier than God intended you to be. That is a good word. God has set real limitations on you. And you will either submit to those things in humility or in pride. You will buck against them. And God has designed it such that that will frustrate you, that will burn you out. It will harm you if you press beyond those things. The third thing is this. What's different about it than the worldly design is that it is to fuel self-sacrifice. So what is the purpose of of self-care? It's actually self-sacrifice. Notice, you know, if we go back to that definition uh, I don't think I actually put it in your outline there. I ran out of room. There's a lot of outline there. But that definition from uh, Everyday Health, they, they, uh, where that thing ends is they even say this, they even reflect on this, that says you can help. It's also that you can help and care for others, and you can do all the things you need to and want to accomplish in a day. Self-care in their definition, definition is to fuel tasks. It's to build resilience for endurance. In other words, it's not an end in and of itself. And, and that's That's a good observation they've made. That is the way God has designed us to work. Listen, it's a really critical truth. Self-care without self-sacrifice will end in self-worship. Self-care without self-sacrifice will end up as self-worship. Or to flip it in the positive, self-care is for the purpose of extending our ability to serve God and do good to others. In other words, to be, to be filled up so that we can keep pouring out. Let's quote at the top of your outline there from Tim Castile. Uh, he says this, this is not a self-care that terminates on oneself. Godly personal formation cannot end on itself. It is going somewhere. It is God-word and others-focused self-discipline. That's really helpful. So that bleeds us into the second point. The second major point here is that God's purpose for this is self-sacrifice. In fact, God's purpose for our lives is self-sacrifice. And and to examine that, I want to show you guys that this is the way the Apostle Paul thought, and therefore it's it's in the Scripture here for us. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 7 to 18. That's in your outline there. Let me read it to you guys. It says this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. He's talking about the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us, us, raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as, the, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a lot to talk about here. We're not going to hit it all, but I want to walk through a couple key things that we should see in here. First is the glorious self-sacrifice. Um, I want to tell you a story, uh, and I share this pretty frequently at these conferences and things. We adopted our first three kids from Ukraine. Uh, our first adoption was in 2013. Um, so our kids, all, our adopted kids all have different disabilities. Um, our two olders uh, have Down syndrome and cerebral palsy. And so they were both five and a half and pretty medically fragile when we adopted them. And so we had a court case uh, you know, to, to make sure we were fit parents to adopt them. The judge literally asked us in our court case uh, to adopt the kids. She said, why would you waste your life? You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Why would you do this was the question she asked. See, she knew their medical complexity, and she asked because she knew that we were taking on a lifelong task of caring for these two children. And then again, we went back and got our third. She knew that there was a cost to all of this. Think about it for a second. I'm going to come back to that. Who are the heroes in our culture? Who are, what are they mostly marked by? If you ever notice that it is a willingness, the consistent thing is that it is a willingness to lay down their lives to give life to other people. Every movie hero, you know, who is actually a hero, has that thing in common. The great historical figures are the ones who risk themselves in order to give life to other people. And I would imagine in this room, if you thought for a minute about the people who have made your life better, you will see this pattern played out. That we can point to certain people who have sacrificed them, themselves for us, and they have made our lives better as a result of this. And my guess is in this room, you could probably think about people that did the opposite of that and made your life worse. See, in adoption, we changed the course of our lives. Adopting our now three kids with special needs was a calculated and reasoned-out choice to sacrifice. We chose, and still to this day, you know, fight our sin nature to choose to lay down our lives, our comfort, our desires, in order to give life to these three kids. We did that. We made that decision, and we do that because we knew that it was just the course of this life, temporary, this life, that we would spend, be spent now because we know that we have millions of years of eternity coming to us in the presence of God himself. 
And that's Paul's logic in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that we have this treasure of the gospel that we have been saved not because of anything that we have done, not because we can be productive or give a lot to God, but because he has a lot to give. We do not behave in order to belong. We have the position of belonging, and that changes the way we behave. This truth, this knowledge, this transformation is what Paul calls a treasure. Now, where do you typically store valuables? Just a couple months ago, I bought a new safe for a house because I was bending all our important forms, sticking it in an old tiny safe. So I got this cool briefcase safe. It's got a handle and it's, you know, in case the house is on fire or whatever. Armageddon starts, we just grab that thing and run. It's good to go. And it's like bulletproof and meteor proof and flood proof. That's where all the important stuff goes, you know? Uh, all my kids' birth certificates or social security cards, like all of it is in this thing. That's where we stick the valuable stuff, is in the safe. God puts his treasure in jars of clay. And it's tremendously counterintuitive. So this is the point of self-sacrifice. Jars of clay are, are disposable. Uh, they were functionally the Tupperware of the ancient world. You guys, you guys have a drawer at home, you know, where all the Tupperware goes, and, you, like, mom doesn't really care what happens to that. You can just throw it out. It's fine. Yeah, because it's a dime a dozen. You get a bunch of them, and then you, they're disposable. In the ancient world, jars of clay were like this. They were disposable because they were cheap. It was common that if you wanted to get the contents out of a jar of clay, what did you do? You just, you just broke it. You smashed the thing because you could just make another one. Just fire up some clay. It's not a big deal. God puts his treasure in disposable vessels. And that's what Paul says that he, and I think by extension Christians, us, we are. We are weak, we are breakable, we are unimpressive. And, and you know, got to be careful with this, but in a sense disposable. And yet this is where God delights to store his invaluable treasure. See, God is insane in our estimation. He puts his most valuable treasure in that throwaway Tupperware. And it is to show that the surpassing power belongs to him and not to us. And as you look at verses 8 and 9 in that passage, you can see all these, these ways that God, uh, or that Paul is going through suffering, that we are afflicted, we are perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down, all these things. We all undergo this suffering, and yet he, by his power, sustains us through that. So the norm of the Christian life, and, and we have to be willing to wrap our heads around this, the norm of the Christian life is to experience little d deaths all the time is that we die. Three times in three verses, Paul repeats this principle. Listen to it again. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And in case you missed it, verse 12, so death is at work in us but life in you. So that's the principle. Now friends, death will be at work in the Christians so that life can be at work in other people. That's the pattern. Now death feels like death, and so we shouldn't be surprised when it hurts or when it's uncomfortable. I don't know anything about being afflicted or perplexed or persecuted or struck down that sounds particularly comforting. But it's normal. 
And, and Jesus makes this very point back in that passage we started with in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. Hear it again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? This is the normal course for the Christian life because this was the course of Jesus' life. As Christians or, quote, little Christ, that's what the word Christian literally means. We are little Christs. We follow his footsteps. Our little deaths don't have the ability to save us. Only Jesus' does. But we honor him. And as Paul, Paul points out, we display him as this jar of clay cracks and breaks. As we experience death, the life of Jesus seeps out of the cracks in order to give life to others. That's the pattern. And so what, is, what does this look like? It's the, the model of self-sacrifice is this. Paul Miller in his book, The J-Curve, it's a phenomenal book, highly recommend it. But I warn you, it'll kick your butt in a good way. He uses this illustration to show us that what the Christian life looks like. You can map it on a J-curve, and that's that little illustration in the outline there. You see, it just models Jesus' life, that Jesus had a J-curve, and we have these J-curves, that Jesus went down into death, but also rose. And so we also experience these little d deaths constantly, and yet we will rise as well. That we go down into death and up into resurrection, we'll talk about that in just a second, the resurrection part. Paul Miller in the book says that these deaths or these sort of the downward slope of the J-curve can fall into three categories. I think this is really helpful to think about. That there are repentance J-curves where you die when we admit our sin and leave it. There is a, a suffering that comes with that. As we choose to leave our sin, repent of it, fight it, we go down into a death. There are suffering J-curves where we die as the Lord ordains hardships in our lives, whether that's circumstantial or uh, sickness or whatever. There is a, a death, a little d death that we experience. There are sacrifice J-curves, which is where we choose to take on a death, that we take on voluntarily some sort of hardship uh, or experience. We give things up in order to give life to others and honor God. So it's repentance J-curves, suffering J-curves, Sacrifice J-curves. But the normal course for the Christian life is we sacrifice to give life to others so that God gets the glory. Now, you might be like, what the heck? I thought we were here for self-care. Is this a whole different you know, workshop or anything? Look, acknowledging our limitations and practicing that stuff that we were just talking about is not antithetical to that. The, the pattern is that we spend ourselves and then are rejuvenated so that we can be spent again until the Lord takes us home. And all of this brings him glory. Anything less than this perspective will eventually cycle in on self-worship. Now, what, what is the power? What kind of fuels this? All that alone would, would be crushing. If it was just death, 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 it would be crushing. If we followed a dead Jesus, uh, this would absolutely be hopeless. But he is risen and alive and, and doing great today. That hope is the hook of the J-curve that Jesus resurrected, and we will too. Despite the pain of death being at work in Paul, he perseveres. And you see it in verses 14 and 15 of that passage, that he believes God, and so he continues speaking, and 
he tips us off to what fuels his endurance. He mentions two things. He mentions the resurrection and this hope that God is glorified through his preaching and his death as more people come to Christ. And what I want to do is, is kind of as we're moving toward wrapping up is that, that first theme of resurrection I want, to, I want to highlight as he talks about that in the last paragraph, 16 through 18. See, something the world cannot offer you is the hope of resurrection. All the goat yoga and spa days and eating vegetables, whatever. Look, when the suffering gets tough, you know, what does that stuff really do? What Jesus gives us is a hope of resurrection. You know, all the self-care in the world won't surpass the endurance-boosting power of resurrection hope. And so Paul can say that we are struck down but not destroyed. And elsewhere he says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That we have access to that kind of power. So look at what he says in this last paragraph in verses 16 to 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, he actually understands that the suffering that they experience, the hardship, all of this stuff, those little deep deaths, they prepare him for this resurrection that is coming. See, the ultimate self-care, the ultimate thing that will enable longevity, the thing that will allow us to endure long after we should have burnt out and quit and walked away is the living hope of the resurrection. And Paul demonstrates here that we embrace death. So death is at work in us, but life in you, we embrace that because we know life is coming, that that's where this is all heading. Certainly our ultimate hope is in the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell in resurrected bodies with God. That is our big capital H hope. But we experience little resurrections through the suffering that we go through as God provides for us and God sustains us and God encourages us. One example of this is Paul talks about in this passage that inwardly we are renewed every day. There are daily resurrections that come as we are poured out. One such resurrection that he mentions is that we would sort of loosen our grip on this world. And that's what he implies in verse 18 that he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In other words, the world will hold less of a tyrannical sway over our lives. Think about it. For example, what if as I sacrificed for Christ, I learned to care less and less about man's opinion of me? There is real freedom in that, even as we suffer. And so, sort of loosen this grip on the world. So, what do we do with this? What do we do with all this? I think there's a couple applications we we can tease out from some of this stuff that will help fuel us as we endure, as we go through. First is this, is remember the resurrection to remember the resurrection. That's what Paul is doing. He is calling to mind, and he's reminding his audience of this reality. Regularly remind yourself, and I, I would encourage you to remind each other, that God is the God of resurrections. That if you lose your life, you will save it. You will experience the death, but God who raises the dead will do what only he can do. This is something that we need to consciously choose to put in front of our brains. That is what Paul is doing here. 
None of us in the flesh will naturally embrace the call to die, and so we need to practice remembering this. This means that you notice and take note of when God does bring about those lower or little r resurrections, when we see him restore, uh, restore us when we take on those deaths. We need to take note of those things and celebrate those things and praise God and share those with each other. But we can do this with our friends as we help them see how God is at work in their lives. We can be bad at seeing our own growth or uh, practicing gratitude for the things that God has given us. We try to do this with our children, that we, we see the good things that God does, even if it's something like, hey, you didn't just hit your brother in the head with that truck. Praise God, look how he's helping you to grow and not hit your brother in the head with the truck. But we identify, man, look, God is restoring you. God is working in you. So we need to remember the resurrection, both in its big sense and even in these like daily little senses. Remember the resurrection. Second thing is this, is redefine suffering. We need to redefine suffering. I'm going to go out on a limb here a little bit. I'm going to say that we need to, and this is going to be really hard to do, but we need to redefine suffering as self-care. That suffering is actually self-care. How in the world could that be true? Well, listen to 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. Do you hear what he says? Rejoice, like celebrate, insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is being revealed. Or perhaps some of you have read Hebrews chapter 12, which says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, for he's treating you as sons. That God is growing us through even our suffering. As friends, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? One thing that the resurrection promises of God do is turn suffering into a benefit for us because it pries our hands off this world. And it shifts our hope into eternity, and therefore it frees us now. And God actually uses our suffering for our good and for our care. And you realize this perspective makes us invincible in one sense. Because even if my hardship is hard, God is using it for my good. And therefore, I can endure. The last thing is this, is, is take risks. What do we do with all this is we can take risks. If this is all true, that God is going to take care of us, that he's going to give us these resurrections and the ultimate resurrection, then we can actually willfully take on deaths, little d, deaths, for the sake of Jesus, that we can actually choose to do this. See, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, none of us is getting out of here alive. Not out of this building, you'll be fine, but, you know, out of this life. It's not, didn't leave you a threat. But unless Jesus shows up in our lifetime, we're all going to die. It's going to happen. And, and so uh, it, it begs the question of how we will spend the one life that God has given us. Mark Fodale always used to say to me, your life is like a coin. You can spend it any way you want, but you can only spend it once. Listen, if we get to the end of our lives with really good self-care, but have sacrificed ourselves for nothing, then we have wasted our lives. The resurrection and the promises of God enable us to actually take on risks and embrace those deaths. Friends, our culture is obsessed with safety and staying safe. Guys, God has not promised you safety. Not in the present sense, not in the way the world thinks about it. He has promised you resurrection. Now, put your seatbelt on. Like, don't be foolish. Don't be foolish, but do be a fool for Christ. So we can 
press past our anxious love of safety and actually embrace death for the sake of Christ. You know, for some of you, maybe this means attempting to start an evangelistic Bible study with your, your study group or your team or folks on your dorm or coworkers or whatever, stepping out there and taking a risk and, and identifying with Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's admitting that you are busier than God intended you to be and you actually need to start saying no to things. And you need to give up some of those resume builders or maybe you need to get a B so that you can get into God's word and get with God's people. Maybe it is actually giving up in the future a high-paying job so that you can get into a place that has a good church where you know you will be ministered to and do good ministry. Maybe it's adopting a bunch of kids. I would love to talk to you about that. Maybe it's going on a short-term missions trip to see if full-time missions is something that God has called you to. Listen, if we have something far better than what the world offers... It's not up to you to care for yourself, but you actually have a God who knows your needs far better than you do, and he loves you, and he delights in you, and he has died so that he could commit to you, then, friends, you cannot outrisk God. He will be on the other side of those things. So, yes, limit yourself. Humbly submit to the limitations that God has placed on you. Get a good night's rest. Eat your vegetables. Develop a hobby. That's a good God-glorifying thing. But know that it is God who is watching out for you, and therefore, because he has promised resurrection, you can die, and you can spend your life on giving life to others, all for his glory. May we be people. Friends, if we do that, we can take over the world. Let me pray for us and ask that God would help us to do this. We, we, we need his assistance in it. God, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are, uh, who are bold in the risks that we take because we know that you are far greater than those risks and you will meet us on the other side of those things. And You have committed to us and you are powerful enough to give resurrection. And we ask God that you would help us uh, in light of that pour out. Father, help us to submit where we need to submit and, and admit our limitations and live within those boundaries so that we can endure in the long haul in being spent for the cause of Christ. I ask that you would help us to do that. And so again, I pray, Father, if any of my friends in this room uh, need to be convicted by this, would you do that work? Would you unsettle them? Would you put the proverbial rock in their shoe uh, until they submit to you? Uh, God, and some of my friends here need to be comforted and encouraged as, uh, encouraged as they are undergoing hardship and suffering, even if it's voluntary, that they've brought on uh, in, in following you. I pray that you would comfort them with this reality that you bring resurrection and you care deeply, you delight in them. Father, would all of this be that there would be more and more, that grace would extend to more and more people and it would ex- increase thanksgiving to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.